Susan Sarandon, Atlanta, Georgia. Just show up. This is difficult. I'm about to interview a woman who is genuine Hollywood royalty, as they say, although I dare say she wouldn't be in favour of a monarchy. An Oscar winner for Dead Man Walking, an icon for Thelma and Louise, a brilliant actor in so much of what she's done, and a spiky, persistent campaigner for causes she considers to be good, unafraid to speak her mind or make trouble, an upsetter, an artist, an agitator, Susan Sarandon, of whom I'm a little bit afraid. And worse than that, we're doing this on Zoom. The plague has struck and sent us all scurrying to our rooms, staring at screens, talking to pixels all day long, and still trying to connect with each other somehow, but actually shouting at ourselves, hoping our voices carry across the ether, through the waves of real and imagined haze. There's something wrong with the laptop. I'm going to have to use the iPad, she says from a hotel room in Atlanta, Georgia, thousands of miles away. I'll have to hold it like this, she says, coming into view, then going again. Feel free to put it down, I say. We can just talk. I think we don't have to stare into the electronic representation of each other's eyes, it's not ideal. I'd rather be in the room, but at this point, I'd also rather have her relaxed and happy. But Susan Sarandon says, no, it's all right. I'm an actor. I do well with pain. Hmm. Not real pain, I think. Pretend pain. But I don't say that because I know she's a human who must have pain in her real life and not just an actor, but a person who regularly speaks up for those who really are in pain and need, like refugees and exiles and the hungry and homeless, much more than I do. I'm in my bedroom at home looking at my own face in one of the windows on screen, wondering if she can see the angry red blemish on my chin. Zoom forces us all to speak to the mirror like the wicked stepmother in Snow White, wondering if we are fair enough. The sun's still high in the sky where she is, although it's the middle of the night here. We were supposed to speak a week ago when Susan was at home in her apartment in Greenwich Village, but then a massive storm hit New York and it was pandemonium. There was a lot of flooding, she says, and that's too true. Hurricane Ida dumped three inches of rain in an hour, which is a lot, and at least 13 people drowned in their own basement apartments. My siblings and their kids lost basements, she says. My son, who was in Brooklyn, the place where he was staying, got very flooded, and he called me to come take the dog. I said, I can't come take the dog. We're in the middle. There's no way for me to get there. Call your brother. She was on the island of Manhattan, across the Hudson, unable to show up for her son this time. And then his brother, who was also in Brooklyn, got on a bicycle in the middle of everything and pedaled over, which made me very nervous. But he said the streets were empty and no tree fell on him, so he went over to help his brother get the water out and calm him down. She didn't lose power for days, like so much of the eastern seaboard in her multi-million pound Manhattan apartment. 
We were lucky. In New Jersey, where one of my sisters is, they didn't have power for a very long time because everything's above ground. Restaurants and houses were exploding because of some kind of electrical thing or gas. I don't know why. It was just like a disaster movie and a sign of catastrophe to come. I don't remember this happening before, where you really can't count on anything, she says. As someone who has tried to raise the alarm about the real harm climate change is doing to us right now. There's hurricanes in places that never had hurricanes. Tornadoes in New Jersey, so your brain can't construct a plan. The storm blew over this time. So now she's down south on the road, making a drama about country music, doing this interview with me for a British magazine, the point of which is to celebrate her birthday. Susan Sarandon is 75. I have a complete disconnect with it, she says, as disconnection starts to become the theme of this conversation. So do I just now looking at her face, framed by fashionable, big, black-rimmed glasses and the familiar tumble-down red curls, you'd think she was at least a decade younger. I'm not old. I don't feel 75. It's crazy. Honestly, I'm happy I made it to 75 because I know there are a lot of people that have been less lucky. Physically, I've been getting signals that I'm not 25, and I have accepted that, she says. Mentally? It's a strange thing. I have about as much ability to comprehend somebody walking on the moon as I do the fact that I'm actually 75. She's sitting on the edge of her bed in that faraway hotel room, far away from home even for her, in a white t-shirt top that has gold or yellow bands. It's hard to tell through the screen. As she talks in that gritty drawl that I have no hope of imitating, Nasal and edgy and yet somehow attractive. That seems to say she knows all about the bull and the injustice, thank you, but still crackles with life and is up for anything. I've watched her on a screen so many times, but this is different. She's actually here, or a version of here, being herself, or a version of that, and... She's generous, I think. Some actors I know would be giving one-word answers, refusing to talk about their age. But she's happily telling me her secrets, such as they are. First of all, you do not smoke. A joint now and then is fine, but not cigarettes. I drink a lot of water. I do yoga. I try to do it at least once a week. I'm very lucky to live in New York, so I'm walking all the time. I have to thank my mum for her bone structure. That's all I can say. All my tattoos are in places that won't sag. And now she's even showing me birds on her arms, one of which is escaping from a cage, and Susan says there are letters and symbols all down her back, which stand for her children and grandchildren. If I'd realised how much they hurt, I definitely would have made them smaller, she says. I didn't start getting them till I was 60. There wasn't really anything I wanted to say. And then I just decided, okay. I wonder if she feels liberated somehow by her age. Some people do. Susan Sarandon runs her fingers through her hair 
and smiles. If ever I was going to burn bridges, it should be now. What at this point do I have to lose? So that is freeing. At this point, I don't give a fuck. Apologies for the language. It's what she said. And perhaps a little context would help here. There have certainly been times when Susan's peers have balked at her strong views. She was banned from the Oscar ceremony for using the stage to protest against Haitians with AIDS being held at Guantanamo Bay in 1993. But they had to lift that ban a couple of years later when she won Best Actress for playing a nun befriending Sean Penn's death row inmate in Dead Man Walking. Liberal Hollywood was probably okay with her campaigning to end the death penalty on the back of that picture, maybe even cheering when she opposed the war in Iraq and spoke up against racism and homophobia in cinema, but protesting against bankers? On Wall Street? Calling Pope Benedict a Nazi? Refusing to back Hillary Clinton against Trump? Made her enemies. And actually that does seem to matter to her. Every film I do, I see as a love story because people have the audacity and the courage to reach out to other people to see and be seen whoever they are, she says. I'm interested in our human connection. So for me, the most difficult times have been when I've been ostracized and cut off from my tribe and the loneliness of that. I know she must be worth a fortune and it's hard to feel sorry for someone whose shelves groan with awards. But there's no doubt how much it costs to speak out about the so-called wrong things in an industry that considers its own opinions unassailably right. Now, though, it seems she is ready to care less. My kids are stable and grown and don't need my protection as much. They will not be as damaged now as they were when they were little if stuff comes out in the paper attacking me or people make threats. That was very painful then, because I was thinking about them and not just myself. Now I feel like they're grown-ups. They'll deal with it. I'm wondering if she feels this new freedom in the rest of her life, too. Yeah, and also, I do think about death a lot more than I did. It seems like every single acting part I get, I'm dying. She laughs, a raw, ironic, happy sound. Every single script, I'm either dying, I have Alzheimer's, or I'm helping someone die. That's my oeuvre at this point. But that's a healthy thing, to have to think about all that. We're going deep. Already. Susan was born in Queens in 1946, the first of nine children that her mother Lenora would have with Philip Tomalin, a television producer. Lenora was from Italy. Susan was raised a Catholic. She went to a Catholic university. So I wonder, does she have any faith of her own left? I really wish I did, she says. I wish I thought that. There's a pause. I know energy can't be destroyed, and so there could be some kind of energy that I have that can still be around after. I do not 
put my trust in being reunited with my deceased family members or friends? No, not really. But my DNA is out there in my kids and grandkids, and that's enough. Is it? Really? I think you have to live by the idea that what you put out in the world, you reap. In that sense, you have an immortality. And then there are the movies. If you appear on film and people like what you do, then you can live forever, or appear to anyway. Susan Sarandon will always be suspended in midair over the Grand Canyon in a blue 1966 Thunderbird, one hand on the wheel and one holding the hand of Gina Davis, their eyes locked on each other, smiling, forever flying, never dying. That's the final scene of her biggest film, Thelma and Louise, as the two women choose to make their own decision and take their own spectacular way out when they're on the run from the feds after killing a would-be rapist. We were supposed to watch them crash down onto the rocks below, dying in the wreckage and the flames, but the director thought, quite rightly, that was too bleak. So the movie ends with a freeze frame of the car in the air, fading to white. Sure, we know what happens next. The laws of gravity predict it. But the laws of storytelling allow us to stop just at the moment of great change. And the human craving for hope allows us to imagine our own alternative endings. Something to hang on to if we need to. And many of us do. The film critic Manola Dargis suggests the bond between the two women transcends reality. No matter where their trip ends, Thelma and Louise have reinvented sisterhood for the American screen. Maybe. The movie was certainly hailed as a breakthrough in the way women were depicted back in 1991, although Susan frowns. The Thelma and Louise thing has never broken through. They thought there would be so many more women-led films after we did it, and I don't think that happened. There definitely is a demand. Still, 30 years later, with their eyes still locked on each other, Thelma and Louise are still flying. Susan got into all this by accident. She was married at the age of 20 to a fellow drama student called Chris Sarandon. And when he was called on to audition with an agent, she just went along to support him. But to both their great surprise, the agent saw something in her and asked her to try out for a movie called Joe, which was about a construction worker going on the rampage against hippies because he thought they were destroying America. That was everybody's nightmare at the time, so it became the easy rider of that year, she says. It's a pretty terrible film. Still, it was her breakthrough. Soap operas came next, then a Broadway play, and the naive Janet in the movie of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, in which she was absolutely terrific. Suddenly, Susan was a proper actor. I was like, God, so this is what I do now. She kept going and kept her surname after divorcing Chris in 1979 and won her first Oscar nomination two years later for Atlantic City. And after that, The Hunger, 
This is the title of the film I am longing to discuss with her the most, because it meant so very much to me when it came out in 1983. And I know I should be talking about Thelma and Louise or Bull Durham or Dead Man Walking, but this is the one for me. Let's be honest, not everybody thinks The Hunger is a classic. The plot does fall apart a bit. The critic, Roger Ebert, said it was agonisingly bad. But he wasn't a 15-year-old fledgling goth walking the streets of East London, getting stared at for black nails and mascara, dodging the thugs to slide into the Walthamstow Granada to sit on his own in that massive flea pit and watch The Hunger. I was... And I bloody loved it. The opening scene was electrifying as the band Bauhaus played their clattering epic, Bella Lugosi's Dead. Their lead singer, Peter Murphy, staring into the camera, performing in a cage in a nightclub, looking dark and sleek and vulpine sexy. And I wanted to be him so much. But not as much as I wanted to be the man he wanted to be. David Bowie, who appears in that opening scene too, dressed in black, with artificially black hair and black sunglasses, alongside an elegant, rather glacial woman who is smoking and inspecting the dancers, and who happens to be played by Catherine Deneuve, the ice queen of French cinema. The pair of them are drop-dead gorgeous, even as they flirt with a younger man and woman in the nightclub, take them home in a car and, brutally, savagely, murder them with ancient Egyptian blades and drink their bloods. It's a vampire movie. A gothic, lesbian vampire movie, no less. But one that defies all the expectations and conventions of that kind of movie up until then. It's stylish. The clothes are beautiful, the interiors are to die for, the cheekbones are as sharp as they come, and I was sitting in the dark, soaking it all up, as if the hunger was a message from the style gods to say, this is how the world can be. You can see its influence in so much that came later. And for a boy who had no internet to help him, who devoured every interview with Bowie to see what he should read and listen to and watch and talk about and be like, this was holy inspiration. There was something else too, stirring in the shadows, because I was wondering who to love. Bowie made me feel made me feel like I could be like my friends who were into boys, whose company I adored, whose life and laughter and wicked humour and secret energy sustained me, whose sweaty bodies swept around mine on dance floors, in clubs with locked doors and bars on the windows, and who were in danger of being beaten up every night and every day on the streets and in school, sometimes at home. And all of us, whatever or however confused our sexuality, were drawn to Bowie. All of us looked up to him like a maverick older brother who dared to do the things we did not dare to do. I was in love with his grace and beauty and mystery and his sense of danger. We all were. I tell Susan Sarandon that I saw The Hunger three times in a week, 
because I thought David Bowie was the coolest human alive. And she says, quickly and almost wistfully, you're right, you're totally right. And then I remember. They had a thing, didn't they? Yeah. They were lovers in real life for a while, although somehow this remained relatively secret for years. She dropped a hint in passing six or seven years ago, and lots of people got very excited. He's worth idolising. He's extraordinary, she told a reporter then, briefly confirming that their affair was serious, but that there was a reason why it didn't last. That was a really interesting period. I wasn't supposed to have kids, and I'm the oldest of nine, and had mothered them all, so I wasn't ever in a mode where I was looking to settle down and raise a family, so that definitely changes the gene pool you're dipping into. In other words, I think, he wanted to have them and settle down. She didn't, or couldn't, maybe. Susan tells me now that just before she made the hunger, She'd had keyhole surgery, and the doctors had told her that endometriosis meant she probably would never have kids. Although after the affair with Bowie was over, she did have a daughter with an Italian film director. And then years after that, a pair of sons, Jack and Miles, the ones caught in the storm, with the actor and director Tim Robbins, who was her partner for 20 years. As for Bowie, did they stay friends? They were nearly neighbours in Greenwich Village in his final years. Yeah, she says, perhaps wondering whether to talk about this or not. She never has before. Not that we hung out a lot, and he had a number of health issues to deal with, but yeah, we did. I was fortunate enough to be closer to him right before he died, the last couple of months. He did find me again. We talked to each other and said some things that needed to be said. I was so fortunate to be able to see him when he told me what was going on with him. I love Iman, his wife, someone so equal in stature. That was clearly who he was destined to be with. I was so happy she was with him through all of that. I've kept in touch with her a little bit. The last time I saw him was at the premiere of the workshop, of the musical that he did. Lazarus, I say, and she agrees. After that, she went abroad as part of her campaigning, this time in support of refugees. I was in Lesbos to see what was going on there and record interviews with the people. That was probably the toughest thing I've ever done. A never-ending stream of desperation that had no recourse and no way to fix it. The camps were just horrific. It was so disturbing. So I wasn't sleeping and I knew I had to get up early to start meeting the boats as they came in. So I took some Ambien, a pretty strong sleep aid. And I had this dream that David had called me and that I had this conversation with him. And as he hung up, I'd thought in the dream, no one's going to believe me that David Bowie called me in Lesbos. She woke up and marvelled at how vivid the dream had been, then got on with her day. Then, three days later, I thought, did he actually call me? And I went to my phone, and he had called me. And I have no recollection of what that conversation was. 
he died a week later. That was so frustrating because I was like, oh my God, what was that conversation? I have no idea. So she never spoke to him again? No, because I was still in Lesbos. Then I got back. Her voice softened to a burr. There was a double rainbow in New York on the day that David passed. The hunger is an allegory for AIDS, which was sweeping through New York and San Francisco at the time, silently because of shame. The ancient vampire Miriam, played by Catherine Deneuve, has bestowed what looks like eternal youth on her lover John, played by Bowie. But suddenly he begins to age insanely fast because of a fire in his blood. He turns for help to Susan Sarandon, playing a doctor called Sarah, who specialises in ageing. Then he disappears. So she comes looking for him at Miriam's elegant townhouse, unaware that John is now hidden in the basement with the rest of the vampire's undead former lovers. So with a third of the movie to go, its biggest star is locked in a box and turning to dust. Because this story is really about these two women, Miriam and Sarah, who have plenty to say and do without any need for a man. The hunger was daring for its time, showing same-sex attraction in a relatively dignified way. It's a bit cheesy, this being the 80s. There are curtains billowing and candles flickering and a delicate piano playing as they flirt and circle each other and one thing leads to another. But it's also quietly beautiful and could have been much worse. The scene was described in the script in a very playboy way, Suzanne tells me, which is no surprise really as it was written and directed by two straight men. I said, for me, the most interesting thing if I see a scene that involves intimacy is the beginning and the after because there's not much difference in what happens in the middle except the way you shoot it. It's what gets them into bed. So when did they first touch? That was something that we created on the spot. I spill my wine, she goes to exchange the shirt, and then we hold hands, and then we kiss, and then the rest of it. I love the fact she is describing a scene that was seared into my brain at the age of 15, the cause of yet more longing in the stalls at the Walthamstow Granada. I know it well, I say. She laughs, presumably at the look on my face. I heard they used body doubles, I say, but Susan says no. It was us. The first day, everybody was all excited and hanging out in the rafters to watch. And by the third day, everyone was bored to tears. Inevitably, really, given how groundbreaking The Hunger and Thelma and Louise and other movies of hers were, as a long-standing ally of LGBTQ plus people, Susan Sarandon gets asked about her own sexuality from time to time, and she always seems to try to answer honestly. It's up for grabs. 
she said a few years ago, after playing Betty Grable in a film called Feud. And yeah, she was open to the idea of dating a woman. I wonder if it's really true, though, given that she was asked the question by Pride Source magazine, or whether it was just the sort of thing she felt she had to say. Yeah, I'm single, but open to persuasion, she tells me. But busy as hell, and with lots of wonderful friends and grandchildren and everything. I think everybody is somewhere on a spectrum, and I like the fluidity of this now. For me, it's all about connection, curiosity, passion. I had a gay boyfriend who had never been with another woman, and we had a very good, fairly long run, and it was sexual. So has she dated women? I think women are beautiful. Their bodies are amazing. But for me to open that window, I would have to have some kind of connection, and there just hasn't been an instance where that crossed my path. I'm not really looking. I feel fulfilled and pretty happy. I would like a travelling companion of some kind, an adventurous soul. But no one's even travelling now, so that's on the back burner. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. In the meantime, I am dancing in my kitchen. What does all this amount to in the end? Two people in long-distance conversation on opposite sides of the Atlantic with little more to go on than what the computer gives us, the cues we get from tone of voice, the ideas we are fast forming of each other. I can't tell if she's falling for my frantic attempts to seem friendly and likeable and on her side. I feel like the Bowie thing has opened up a truth and connection between us, but I've no idea if that's real. I suppose what I'm experiencing is that even in the most dislocated circumstances, humans keep trying to connect anyway because we need it. Or some of us do. The ones with a compulsion. Even in the toughest times or the fiercest storms. Connecting with other people is good for us, the doctors say. It can help us handle our emotions, feel better about ourselves, develop more empathy lower anxiety and provide some defence against depression. We have a human need for companionship and for close contact, says the physician and therapist Dr Gabor Mate, to be loved, to be attached to, to be accepted, to be seen, to be received for who we are. The neuroscientist Professor Matthew Lieberman says connection is as important as the basic need for food, water, shelter and warmth. Being socially connected is our brain's lifelong passion, he says. It's been baked into our operating system for tens of millions of years. Making connection with someone is easier if you're in the room. The signals are easier to read and respond to. But what about on Zoom? How do you reach out then? How has it happened this time, apparently against the odds? Well, I wonder if for some people at certain moments in their life it's actually easier to talk freely on Zoom. They're in their own room, in control of their own space. They can switch off the computer if they want to, or just the camera. They don't have to keep up eye contact. They can look wherever they want to. So maybe when a thought grabs them and they run with it, they can feel like they're talking to themselves, and maybe that frees them up. I wasn't trying to trick 
Susan Sarandon into talking about David Bowie. I didn't realise she would. I was just sharing my own genuine feelings about him, indulging myself, but also reaching out because beyond my need to get a good quote and her need to publicise whatever it is she's doing next, we are just two humans sharing stories. And that's where it gets really interesting. So maybe it was just that she really wanted to say something about him that had been on her mind and found for a change that here was someone who just might get it, who shared a little of her great love for him, who was willing to ask and willing to listen. So she was willing to risk talking. You have to do the best you can do with what you have, she says. I tell my kids to be authentic and kind. Injustice has always really disturbed me. I don't know why, but from the time I was little, I was rotating my doll's dresses in case they came to life at midnight. So one wouldn't have all the good dresses all the time. So that's just a character flaw. And it's so hard to be like that right now. I'm struck by her willingness to say things that might on the face of it sound a bit ridiculous and could be ridiculed, but actually seem to reveal someone trying to be true to herself, to give what she can, give all to the moment, take a risk, whatever the consequences, and somehow, maybe, like Thelma and Louise, fly, preferably without dying. Then something happens as we come to the end of our time. Susan wants to read out a quote from the writer Howard Zinn that sums up how she feels about life right now. And tears begin to well up. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. She is actually weeping as the last sentence comes. To live now as we think human beings should live, in defiance of all that's bad around us, is itself a marvellous victory. I try to console her by saying she's clearly tried her best to make the world a better place as an activist, but also as an actor whose movies have changed the way people think and feel. Thank you, says Susan Sarandon, as we come to a quiet but hopeful end. That will be a good epitaph. She gave it her best shot. I think that's all you can ask for. Show up. Just show up. Thank you for listening to the story. I really appreciate it, and I'd love to know what you think. You can find me, Cole Morton, on social media or via the website, hodderfaith.com. And if you enjoyed it and you feel like leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts or sharing it with your mates, that would be really helpful. Thank you. Just between us, to finish off, 
I want you to hear what Susan sounded like on the day. So here she is reading that Howard's Inn passage. You can hear the emotion. I think she really means this stuff. Can I read it to you? And then Please. if you want it, we can send it to you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, and kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history, get me so emotional, will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. And if we do act in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of presence and to live now as we think human beings should live in defiance of all that is bad around us is itself a marvelous victory.